I never set out to start a business and to become an entrepreneur. It was a change of mindset. British scientist and health expert Samantha de Comble recently had her invitation to speak at a European scientific conference cancelled because she was seven months pregnant. You were effectively discriminated against by the European Commission. Talk to me about that time. What happened? It was a real shock. You've still got to pay your rent. You've still got to put food on the table. It all came crashing down with the diagnosis. Sometimes taking a risk is something worth doing because even if it fails, ultimately you've gone on that journey and you've had that experience. It's about where your state of mind is and your perspective on life and your approach to life. Sam, welcome to The Virtuous Mindset. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Shivani. <laughs> no, I'm really glad we're talking because I was just thinking about how long we've known each other. I think it's been like mm. five years. And I remember when I graduated, you were one of my first clients. And then we did that event together, the Power of Mentoring event. You were a speaker. And at that, at that time, I think you were pregnant as well. So it was, yeah. That was, would be about right, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a really interesting time. But this feels like a full circle moment to be sitting here talking about your experiences, mm. learning more about your businesses and, and your mindset. Before we get started, as a CEO, what does it mean to you to have a virtuous mindset? Well, I thought about this question and I think obviously mindset, it, it implies a state of mind and um, thinking about particularly perspective for me. So um, I guess the, the whole reason that I started my business in the first place, I, I never set out to start an, a business and to become an entrepreneur. It was a change of mindset that, that led to that. And it was the um, it was actually losing my dad to esophageal cancer when he was in his um, 50s. Uh, he was 57 at the time. And it changed my whole outlook, um, my mindset on the way that I viewed risk, particularly. I'd always thought about setting up my own business, having that flexibility of being my own boss. And the perspective of losing my dad and, you know, thinking, well, what's the worst that can happen now? The £20,000 that I had in my bank account, which I'd saved up through my PhD to put towards a first house, I would have written that money off that day to have had my dad back. So it really put it in perspective for me that it's just about life experience and that yeah. sometimes taking a risk is something that is worth doing because even if it fails, ultimately you've gone on that journey and you've had that experience um, which has value in its own right so for me just to summarize the question I guess is, yeah, <laughs> a virtuous mindset is about it's about where your state of mind is and your perspective on life and how you view um, life and your approach to life right and I think that the conversation that you had with your dad was was really pivotal in your career and we'll mm. talk about that for sure but I was doing my research into you and um, from what I gathered, you graduated from the University of Birmingham and then you had a whole host of different roles from technology transfer manager, fund manager, lab assistant, <laughs> freelance associate, and then you're working for yourself and we're going to talk about the businesses. Mm -hmm. Talk me through that journey from where you started up to the point where just before you decided to set up your own businesses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting having it played back because yeah. I, I forget a lot of the things that I've done over the course of that time. And I think for me, there's always been an element of doing the things that interest me. And um, I, I remember when I graduated, we had a talk by Adam Hart Davis at the time. And mm. he said to the audience of uh, students and the audience of parents, 
Um, you know, he's never thought about a career in his life. He's only ever done the things that he's enjoyed and that's got him, you know, so far in life and he's had a good life. Um, and the parents were all absolutely horrified because they all wanted <laughs> us to have good, stable careers and not be very clear in terms of what we wanted to do with our lives. But actually, I thought about it and I thought, I think that fits me very well because I, I'd done a degree because I enjoyed science. I love science. Mm. Um, I'm fascinated by, um, you know, all elements of the, um, the natural world, particularly. Yeah. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do after I'd finished that course. So I did a PhD, which um, is yeah. the number one reason not to do a PhD, according to um, most academics. Yeah. Um, but I really enjoyed that. I learned some great skills, some great transferable skills from doing a PhD in terms of independent working particularly um, and uh, managing my own time, uh, managing my own projects, um, coming up with my own ideas. Um, and uh, But I knew I didn't want to stay in academia. I sort mm. of got to that point where studying one very small facet of one thing, um, for me, it lost its, it, its uh, gloss as it were. Um, so I decided that what I wanted to do at that point, having tried lots of different um, sort of careers options, uh, lots of workshops and um, opportunities while I was at university to sort of see different career um, opportunities. Um, I found one called Technology Transfer, which mm. was helping academics to commercialise their research in a university setting. And what really appealed to me about that was the opportunity to help academics to um, commercialise their research. It was at the cutting edge. It was getting it out there to the public where it could be of benefit to people. Um, and I was doing lots of, I was touching on lots of different sciences, which was really fascinating. Mm. So I, I went down that road because um, mm. that's what I thought, well, this is what's caught my eye at this time. Um, and it was while I was working as a technology transfer manager that my dad was was diagnosed. Yeah. Um, so all of those subsequent roles in a way, when I'd made the decision to quit my role as a technology transfer manager to set up my own business, um, you still have to pay the bills. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a, you know, a, yeah. <laughs> a big, um, I had some money and I put that money into the lab and into developing the project. You've still got to pay your rent. You've still got to put food on the table. Um, so I had to take on um, second jobs to, to keep that money coming in at the time. I lived with my partner who was a student, postdoctoral mm. researcher at the time. Um, and yeah, we just needed to, um, I needed to do something to keep the, the money coming in. So I took on lots of part-time roles. Um, the fund manager role was a maternity cover, which was really convenient, uh, 12 month placements. Um, I mean, I did everything in that time from um, working at the Royal Mail Postal Office early in the morning. I do a couple of hours before yeah. cycling to work. Um, I did babysitting in the evenings. Um, yeah, just what I needed to do really to make ends meet. Wow, that's that's quite a journey. And the fact that you did all these different things alongside it makes all the difference. And you mentioned something, obviously you mentioned that your dad being diagnosed with esophageal cancer stage four, which mm. was really the thing that propelled you to decide to start your own business. What was the conversation that you had with your dad? Because I'm sure that must have been difficult to have but also it, it mm. got you to where you are now I suppose yeah yeah I often think back on that it, it was a real sliding doors moment and I wonder what life would have been if obviously what had happened didn't happen yeah um, I think I'd probably still be working as a technology transfer manager perhaps yeah. um, in a university department somewhere um, but uh, no it was um, my dad was 57, um, as I say, when mm. he was diagnosed um, and uh, he was stage four. He was late stage. He was 
three years short of retirement. He'd got grand plans for what he was going to do when he retired. He'd, he'd sort of planned in advance. They were going to go, he was going to go traveling with my mum and uh, they were going to see the world. There were so many places he wanted to visit. Um, they'd been saving up for it and um, it all came crashing down um, with the diagnosis. Um, they did try and book something Mm. um a trip over to hawaii which is an island he'd always wanted to visit and they couldn't get insurance cover um, because of the late stage of his um his cancer and they didn't want to take the risk uh, of traveling and obviously having issues with with getting back so um, he never got to make that journey and he said to us all myself my brother and my sister at the time if there's anything you want to do, you should just go and do it because you don't. You can plan all these things, you know, and sometimes life just doesn't work out that way. So, mm. some, you know, if there's something you want to go do, um, go and do it now. Um, so I took him at his words. Mm. And um, after I quit my job, I went traveling around Africa for uh, six weeks, which is, again, something I'd always wanted to do. Take a gap year, see the yeah. world a bit. Um, never got around to it. I'd always been bouncing from one thing to the next. Yeah, yeah. So I, I took some time out and I, I got that out of my system. And when I came back, that's when I decided to set up my first business. Yeah, play DNA. Well, we're going to yes. definitely talk about that. But I feel that's so inspiring because so many people struggle to take the risk to go and set up their own business. So the fact mm-hmm. that, that those words had such an impact on you and it made you decide to go ahead and <clears throat> go full swing and take that risk is mm-hmm. is what really makes the difference. But Play DNA obviously was your first business. How did you come up with the idea of Play DNA? And what is Play DNA for those that don't know? <laughs> it was very random. Um, <laughs> yeah. My uh, my partner, uh, long-term partner, Stuart, uh, at the time, he was working as a postdoctoral researcher at Oxford um, in genetics as well. And a friend of his had uh, mentioned that he'd seen a company online that did DNA artwork. And he was really keen. He was looking for a, a birthday gift for his sister. Mm. Um, he wanted something particularly unusual. He thought this would appeal to her because she was a scientist as well. And he asked Stuart, is this something, because they were very expensive, he said, is this something you could do, um, you know, as a favour for a mate? And Stuart was telling me about this and we were having a look at this company online. And uh, I I was saying to him, well, this is, you know, there's 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 no information with the the image that they provide so this could be an image of anyone's dna it could be a banana's dna for yeah. all you know um so yeah. why wouldn't you put some information in there that said something about the person because yeah. i think that would be much more interesting right and i, I guess i just latched onto that concept of th- this is something that i'd done in my um, phd mm. i'd worked with a technique called allele specific PCR where mm-hmm. we created these banding patterns of DNA and depending on the um, the particular patterning of the band it would tell you what version of a particular gene you had. Um, so I thought well I could apply this technique to creating these portraits and then I could also tell people something about themselves. Wow. Um, so everything from you know whether you've got blue eye gene or a brown eye gene because um, obviously we can have hidden genes, um, brown eye carriers could carry hidden blue eyes. Uh, morning evening preference Um, but we also did genes related to uh, sports performance so Mm. that's uh, things like metabolic efficiency um, fat burning potential um, whether you've got um, the gene for speed um, as the the media dub it yeah 
Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Almost like you're combining your experience being having coming from a science background with your entrepreneurial flair to be able to to do both, which is which is quite interesting. But you had a lot of success. You were featured on Forbes magazine, BBC Radio, LAB Times, um, and then went on Dragon's Den. What was it like going on the den? It's <laughs> quite an experience. I remember seeing the clip and thinking, wow. Yeah, this is uh, you mentioned earlier about the the taking a risk and and sometimes it's just sometimes you look back on life and you remember these things and it makes you smile because it's yeah. I don't know it's like ticking a we did that thing and it was fun and exciting um, it was nothing like a real pitch um, because obviously subsequently we went on to do uh, we, we raised funding we've raised um, for the current company we've raised over eight million wow. pounds in funding to date so we've done a lot of that now yeah this was our first experience and Dragon's Den was nothing like the yeah. real life experience of going yeah. out and raising um, capital for, for business. Um, it was, um, how to describe it, we were in the uh, green room for over eight hours before mm -hmm. we went in for the filming, mm -hmm. um, which was very short. It was only about 40 minutes long. Okay. Um, wow. I think we got about a 30 second clip on the TV um, as a result of that. Um, but it, it was very positive. We got some really good feedback from Deborah Meaden particularly. And uh, Peter Jones did say to us that he would fund us if Stuart proposed to yeah, him I saw that. <laughs> in the studio, uh, which he refused. So he <laughs> yeah. said he, he missed the best opportunity of his life to say, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like you'd want something a bit more romantic, right? Rather than him. Yeah, absolutely. We had a bit of a joke with it with yeah. Peter at the time. But yeah, um, yeah no, I was I was very relieved. He, he did eventually propose a year later oh, in a much more romantic nice, location nice. in Stratford. So yeah, yeah, that's how you want it. So exactly. Good. That was it was a moment for us rather than um you know a PR stunt yeah. so yeah yeah absolutely I, I guess in a way it gave you the publicity that you needed to mm. showcase your product and talk about it which I think makes all the difference mm. and I suppose what advice would you give to others that want to go on the den that are nervous about taking that decision and leap of faith is there anything you'd say? I mean, I, th I think it's just to give it a go. I, I think the best advice you can give someone that is planning to do something like that is just to be well prepared. Mm. Um, we were very clearly drilled by the team that went in there to see where our weaknesses might be. Yeah. Um, a lot of questions were asked. Yeah. Um, and we could see where there were other individuals that perhaps weren't as sharp on the numbers, say. It was very clear that that's where they targeted their questioning when they went in. So I think just being very confident, going in, well prepared, confident um, and just having fun with it. Because for most people, uh, Dragon's Den particularly is more about profile raising mm. than necessarily the investment. The investment yeah. is a bonus. Yeah. Um, but obviously the PR that you can get off the back of a good um, performance on Dragon's Den is, um, you know, something you can't buy. Yeah. Did it really make a difference after you went on Dragon's Den? In no, terms of <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> that's the irony. No, which is another another really interesting point actually in terms of ensuring you get the correct, you match the demographic of the the audience that you're trying to target from a marketing perspective. Right. Um, and with with Dragon Stamp, with with Play DNA, we had mm. a very expensive product. Mm. Um, it took two days to create. Um, two days of me in the lab, full time, um, working on generating the banding patterns, doing the validation tests, and then actually creating the artwork and editing the artwork, creating the booklets. Everyone was individually wow. printed because obviously you can't do multiple copies. Everyone's unique. Mm. Um, so it was a very expensive. We had to sell it at a significant 
price in order to recoup those costs and to make any sort of um, profit on top. So we were looking for um, individuals, a very specific demographic, um, who were um, had um, a lot of disposable income, mm. uh, were interested in, in art and mm. had a, a need for a piece of artwork and who were interested in science. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was a very small niche. Yeah, it's um, like that middle class, upper middle class yeah. category that you're trying to appeal to, which is hard actually to mm. be able to do that. But um, no, you definitely achieved a lot from from just having your first business. And I wanna switch gears because you you obviously set up your next business, Fitness Jeans, which is the one, the, the business that we obviously met and we got to know one another. Mm. It was originally known as Muscle Jeans, That's which right. you didn't like the name. I didn't. Um, <laughs> how did that concept come about from in terms of Fitness Jeans? Yeah, there's a great irony to it thinking back actually, because I'm a huge advocate of resistance training, weight bearing training now. And I did very little back then. I was a runner. Um, I did a lot of sort of more athletic um, stuff. Yeah. Um, didn't do a lot of gym work, shall we say, a lot of weight-bearing training in the gym. I'd go on the, the, the running machine, as it were, or on the step, stepper. But we met, um, just to sort of take a step back a moment, um, we were at a mutual friend's wedding, Stuart and I, and uh, Stuart, it was one of Stuart's friends from school, and he met another schoolmate there called Dan, Daniel Reardon. And Dan was a medical doctor, um, but also a certified personal trainer. And he ran a gym down in Cardiff. Uh, he trained um, high net worth individuals in this gym. Um, and uh, it, he obviously had a lot of knowledge around um, how to, to do that. Um, and muscle building, his focus was on bodybuilding and muscle building. And we were telling him all about play DNA. Mm. We mentioned the sports portrait that we did, looking at these facets of physical performance. And he went, my clients would love this like they would mm. we can use this we can tailor their training regimes we can look at their nutrition you know what else can we do and uh, so we all sort of after the wedding uh, we got back together again uh, we talked the idea through Dan brought in a fourth co-founder Mark Gilbert um, to join us who was um, a guy with over 20 years experience in the um, supplement industry um, also uh, great advocates in the, the bodybuilding um, industry. And uh, between us, we came up with muscle jeans as the yeah. concept. <laughs> and as you say, I hated the name. Yeah. It felt so raw and mm. um, and so far away from my scientific roots. Um, but they, Mark and Dan, they absolutely understood the, the demographic that we were targeting in this case, mm. bodybuilders, mainly male. And the, that name, it really spoke to them. Mm. They understood what they were getting from it. And within um, a week of putting it on sale, um, we had a pre-existing route to market, which was very helpful through a, a question and answer website, which Dan and Mark had set up together. So we were able to just put that out to all of uh, their customers and say, would anyone like a, a plan based on their DNA? Mm. And we had so many people purchase within the first uh, week. We had wow. to take it off sale while we reassessed what we do next because I was it was keeping me in the lab for about four weeks solid um, wow. just processing all of the because I was still doing it by hand at that point yeah yeah well I guess in a way it, it makes you think know your audience because sometimes as an entrepreneur you think of an idea a concept and mm. it's you know it's interesting that you said that you didn't like the name muscle jeans yet it's the it's the name that appealed to your target audience so mm. i think that sometimes is is really important but yeah. i want to delve into the science behind fitness jeans and i've deliberately not talked asked you what the product is because 
I read your peer-reviewed paper and that discusses the link between the presence of certain genes. In this case, it was the FTO gene for obesity mm-hmm. and that increasing our chances, our odds of being obese in the future. Mm-hmm. Break down the science for me, for someone that doesn't understand it and what are fitness genes doing to mitigate that risk? Great, I, I'll do my best because it's very- No problem. It, no is, problem. it is very complex and we have yeah. a very intelligent in-house science team that spend all their days reviewing all of the data in order to put these algorithms together that make these predictions. Um, we just found out recently actually that our patents is going to be granted yes. on it as well, which is really exciting. Yes. Um, and uh, that's essentially the patent covers the way in which we combine um, this DNA data, genetic data, along with other types of data such as environmental and lifestyle data. Um, we could also include blood data, pre-diagnosis, wearables, uh, microbiome ultimately. Um, but to put this data together and to create nutrition and exercise plans from it. Um, Because what we're essentially trying to do is to create a physiological avatar of an individual by looking at all these different facets of their um, biology. And genetics is one of them. Um, So uh, as as you mentioned, uh, Shivani, we look at sometimes it's single genes. Mm. Occasionally there are single genes which have very large impacts um, on on an individual. So for example, um, the lactose gene um, is a a good one. Mm -hmm. That is a single gene which turns the production of an enzyme on or off, depending on if you've got one genetic variant of it or if you've got another. And if the, 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 the lactase continues to be produced into adulthood, normally for most mammals, the lactase gene gets turned off. It's a weaning mechanism, wean the, the youngsters off so that they can have another brood, as it were, and, and move on to something else. But in some um, adults, particularly in northern European populations, that lactase gene stays switched on. And that means that they continue producing lactase, which means that you can digest um, dairy products essentially without getting the stomach issues that that so many people will associate with um, consuming high levels of dairy. Um, Now that's a single gene change. um, Mm. And that's something that we feature on the site. Mm -hmm. Uh, The majority of the changes that we look at at the moment though are based on multiple genes um, because most of the time we're looking at it's more a burden of risk um, around a particular physiological condition. Um, So for example, somebody may carry a lot of um, genetic variants which are associated with a particular trait, like um, being obese. Mm. Um, And having a high burden of genetic variants associated with obesity in that population studies have been done and scientists have looked within these groups and seeing that there is a particular variant which seems more prevalent within the obese group than the non-obese group, then we can start to say, right, you've got a burden of these um, obese genes. Um, Sometimes they have mechanistic effects, a lot of the time they they don't. Um, But by understanding that information and understanding what particular risks that puts someone um, at, we can start to make recommendations around the sorts of interventions that they may want to try that may work best for them based on their unique biology. Mm-hmm. And these are all preventative measures, which you've mentioned to me, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. That you're not going to be assessing someone's risk of them, uh, you know, of, a, of them having a disease or something like that that can't be prevented. No, and there's no absolutely. nutritional. We're not diagnosing anyone. It's not a clinical test in any way. Um, It's basically a test which looks at, it's a sort of um, 
um, looking at predispositions. Right. Um, so it doesn't mean you're going to be obese if you have a burden of these genes, but it does mean that you're more likely than an average person plucked from the population um, yeah. th that wouldn't be carrying the same volume of variants. Um, and in some cases we can make, by, by breaking that down further, so within the weight loss category, category for example, um, weight loss is very complex or, mm -hmm. or somebody's ability to lose weight or put on weight is very yeah. complex. And um, we could look at facets such as hunger. Yeah. So that's uh, after you've eaten a meal, how quickly do the chemical messages go to your brain that to tell it you've had a meal, your stomach's full and to switch off that hunger response. Um, so that's one facet. There is um, behavioral eating. So how do you behave in particular situations around a buffet, at parties, wow. at social events? Um, and uh, anxiety when you're particularly anxious you will hear people say when they're anxious they overeat and for other people when they're anxious they don't eat at all right different responses yeah um, you've also then got um, metabolism impacts on it somebody again fast or slow metabolism people are very familiar with that concept if you've got a fast metabolism uh, you know great for keeping the weight off because you're burning all that energy not so great if you want to be an elite endurance athlete these, yeah <laughs> these things are always trade-offs yeah um and then obviously um hormone uh, hormonal changes hormone response in terms of weight gain um the impact of fat on weight gain and how you react to fat the impact of sugar and how you react to sugar on your ability to to uh, lose weight or gain weight as well so yeah it's not weight loss isn't just one thing it's yeah. made up of lots of different things and yeah. depending on whether you identify with an individual that their um their issue may be with um their um uh, eating behaviors say yeah. then you can make very specific recommendations around mindfulness and mindful eating um, and taking time out and eating slower um, which are more psychological interventions. Yeah. yeah. Whereas if it's uh, something to do with hunger, mm. uh, for example, then you can look at what makes up their um, their macronutrient ratio, essentially, and maybe increase the amount of protein, which has a more of a filling effect. Um, so there's, depending on what you identify within someone's um, genetics can help lead you down a path which might be um, a better way for them to manage their manage a healthy body fat level in this case. Yeah, I mean, when I was doing my research, I just couldn't believe how much information our DNA can can show us. And and as you said, it can, it can show us so many things about us. Mm -hmm. But you have had critics, you know, talk about not necessarily fitness genes, but this whole concept of the connection between our genes and that increasing our risks of say being obese in the future. And mm -hmm. pr Professor Tim Spector, British epidemiologist, his view is that we cannot use our genes as a personalized predictor of obesity. He then goes on to say in a Times article that DNA testing is the wrong approach. What do you say to that? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure uh, Professor Spector is being paraphrased to some extent because I'm sure even he understands and I believe it's quoted within that Times article that for some individuals, um, their genetics can account for up to 80% of the impacts um, of the likelihood of them being obese, which obviously is a huge amount. Yeah. yeah. Um, and these are particularly penetrant variants, um, by the way, which are usually very rare variants as well. So uh, not the sort, obviously, that we're um, talking about at Fitness Genes, where they're uh, more common variants in the population. Um, I, th I think, um, again, the fact that with um, genetics, genetics is already used as a, a, a diagnostic tool across um, a number of clinical uh, 
um, areas. So breast cancer screening, very one that people be very f- familiar with, the BRCA genes, um, the APOE variants and their association with um, various forms of dementia. Now, all of these things, you know, are things that could be pre-screened in people at a, a young age. And there are, in many cases, nutritional interventions that can be made as a result of uh, finding out this information that can help extend healthy life as a result. So if I found out, for example, that I was a carrier of some of these APO um, Mm. E-variants, then I would probably look at increasing my omega-3 intake um, in my diet, for example. And, uh, you know, I would look at increasing the amount of exercise. Um, Exercise also has an impact on um, sort of helping someone to move more towards Um, healthier outcomes it's very difficult with a lot of these because it's the difference between absolute versus relative risk Mm. and some Mm. of these genes are to do with absolute risk which is a basically a predictor that someone is going to get this particular disease in the future whereas a relative risk is more to do with um, putting someone within a, a particular category where people who are like them are more likely to be within that region but it doesn't mean that everybody who carries that will it doesn't provide a percentage chance that somebody's going to get that yeah uh, yeah. particular condition um obesity in this case yeah um i mean what i would say i think in um response it's a lot of the work that tim does on the blood glucose monitoring is is very interesting And, um, you know, there's no doubt that these are all biomarkers ultimately. And the more knowledge that we have about these sorts of things, the more, um, you know, the more accurate we can make in prediction, the more accurate predictions we can make. Um, But that is looking at, again, one small facet, which is to um, blood glucose um, sensitivity and avoiding blood glucose spikes. and the idea behind that is that um, blood glucose spikes are associated with increased inflammation and inflammation is bad um, for our bodily processes and it can lead to um, chronic conditions, lifestyle related diseases um, like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So by reducing inflammation, um, you're reducing your chances of getting that. Um, but again, inflammation is just one facet of health. So it's not considering all of the other potential um, biological systems in that regard. Um, and, and we do touch on more than just inflammation is one of the categories mm. we look at as well. Yeah. Um, but we do also look at uh, many other um, categories all around sort of um, brain health, um, sleep, um, um, ability to build muscle. Uh, which is yeah. just as important for a 50-year-old woman um, yeah. who's going through menopause, for example, than yeah. it, as it is for a, a 20-year-old man who wants to uh, look good in the gym. Yeah, well, I feel like this information is so useful. And we've talked about this concept of positive psychology. And when you're delivering this information to the people that sign up to your your, your platform, your, your website, you obviously are talking about the risk of heart health, obesity, which we know can be quite nerve wracking, but the way you share it is obviously very, very important. Mm. How do you ensure that that information is conveyed in a way to ensure that it's not going to upset somebody it's it's delivered in the right way how mm. does fitness genes help with that it's it's a really it's a really difficult one actually and mm. it's something we spend a lot of time discussing internally mm-hmm. um and um don't always get right um yeah. so you know this is something that we're continually assessing ourselves on too 
Um, we find that most of our customers, when, when we've done consumer research, it's about a third of people to two thirds that say that they have a particular fear over finding out some, something about themselves that would be upsetting or that, that they would find unexpected. Um, these are not the people generally that go on to buy our test. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's almost self-selecting in some ways. Yeah. Despite that, we obviously try and present the information in as positive a way as possible because our whole aim is around preventative healthcare and we want to encourage people to undertake healthier behaviour and better behaviour. Um, I mean, again, we can come up with the, you know, the most precise, accurate um, plan for someone in the, the world. Um, just imagine if someone could conjure up your perfect health plan. Um, it's still no good when it's just sat on paper and you're not following it, which yeah. tends to be the biggest problem for people is to find the motivation to actually follow the health advice in the first place. Right, yeah. Um, so that motivational part, as you say, the positive psychology of it is actually really critical mm. to having a successful preventative health product. Mm, mm. Um, for us, we tend to focus on, we avoid telling people what not to do. Yeah. Um, there's very few occasions within our recommendations you'll find a don't do this. Um, there's there's a few and, and they're the ones that the, the, where the association is so strong we just can't get away with not saying it. So yeah. everybody will be familiar with the, you know, don't smoke, don't drink. We, we know these things are particularly detrimental to health. Right, yeah. Um, but aside from that, um, we tend to focus on telling people what they should be introducing to their diet, mm -hmm. um, which again sets us apart from other some other um, um, personalized nutrition companies. Yeah. Um, so the idea for us is what should you be introducing into your diet for a healthful purpose? Mm -hmm. uh, because there's so many types of superfoods and different diet yeah. types, and they're all sold to us as, you know, the, the new sort of faddy best thing for you today. Um, but you can't do everything. Mm. So for us, it's about distilling it down to those. Um, I mean, if I can give a, a short example, actually. Yeah. Um, just a personal one. Um, we found out last year that my uh, mother um, had high cholesterol. Yeah. And it fell out over a family dinner. My sister, who's two years younger than me, had just been diagnosed with high cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And she was telling us, um, oh, no, the doctor's just told me this. And my mum said, oh, I've had that for 10 years. Um, and yeah, oh we both God. we were both like, hang on a minute, you didn't tell us about this. Um, so, uh, but she said, yeah, the doctor had been giving her all the usual generic NHS advice. Uh, my mum is also the same weight as me; she's not overweight. Yeah, um, she exercises three times a week. As far as she was concerned, she had a healthy diet. Yeah, um, she ate a lot of carbs, a lot of pasta. Yeah, um, but uh, but she had all of her five a day and fruit and veg and and that. Um, so I went away, I did the, the research, had a look at her profile. Uh, understandably, all of us as a family group have a genetic variants which are associated with um, increased risk of um, high cholesterol, mm -hmm. um, which was now obviously coming out in my mother and my sister yeah. who had slightly um, less optimal diets than I did at the time. And um, so I said to them, right, these are the recommendations you need to do. And it's basically eight things that you're going to introduce into your diet. So didn't talk about taking anything out, um, didn't, you know, salt or anything like that. We just said, right, eight foods, just get as much of these eight foods into your diet as you can. And it was um, mostly whole foods. So things like um, flaxseed, um, oat bran, um, so mixed in with oats. Um, uh, what else did we have? We had um, garlic. Um, but we recommended as well as supplements um, just to ensure that they were getting enough garlic in their diet and also a psyllium husk supplements for fibre. 
Um, apples was another one. Phytosterols, um, very important. So you can get that through, um, you know, the Benicol style. Mm-hmm. Um, other brands available. Yeah. <laughs> uh, drinks, uh, yogurts yeah. and, and spreads. Um, and also um, more soy products, um, mm. interestingly, which was a new one to me. Um, so things like tofu, edamame beans. Oh, yeah. Um, like that. <laughs> so, yeah, soy milk, replacing the dairy with the soy milk. Um, so my mum and my sister did this, um, both of them. And we did blood tests. Being scientists, we like to measure what yeah, we're testing. Yeah. So we did a blood test on uh, the, in the first week. And then we did a blood test three months later after they'd been following these interventions. And um, they both, uh, their, their cholesterol levels dropped in both. My sister's dropped back into the normal range. My mum's um, dropped by 25% her total wow. cholesterol in three months and 21% in terms of her LDL. And um, I mean, she went back to the doctors and the doctors just said, what have you been doing? Like, mm. what changed? Mm. And she said, well, I just learned from my daughter what foods I needed to eat. And, and that oh was the knowledge God. I needed. Yeah. Um, and that's just one small example of the way in which you know, a positive change to diet can have such a huge impact in terms of, in my mum's case, the reversal of a, a particular issue, high cholesterol. Um, in my case, I don't have high cholesterol, mm. but I have all the genetic markers of having, having high, high cholesterol, cholesterol when I'm older. Mm. So I'm already following these um you know, these particular interventions, because I know for me personally, that this is something where I've got an increased risk. Mm. And therefore, in terms of my choices as to what sorts of superfoods I should have in my diet, uh, these are the ones that are most important for me. Yeah, that's so interesting. And you managed to mitigate it, which is which is so like, the fact that she your (laughs) mum actually decided to take that advice on board and do something about it. Sometimes, like you've said, Mm. that's what's the difficult thing is holding yourself accountable, because you have all this information that you've been presented with, obviously, it's Mm. narrowed down, and it's very specific. But then the accountability aspect is what needs to kick in and make Mm. sure that you're holding yourself to it and, and as you say Shivani the key is the positive positive psychology don't yeah. say don't do that yeah we're saying flip it do this yeah um, and it's a lot easier to add foods and of course by adding foods most people will then replace um, yeah so instead of having um, like chicken or or meat in her stir fries um, she would replace it with tofu or yeah. beans yeah um, so it, it just naturally it naturally became a, a sort of movement towards a healthier diet without yeah having to talk about, um, you know, the negative of removing yeah. particular foods from her diets. Yeah, I like the idea of adding things in rather than removing. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's mad how to think that that can really have an impact on how you see things. And mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's interesting. I want to shift gears and I want to talk about a time when you righted a wrong because I found this really, really inspiring. And when I was doing my research into you, I didn't even know that you did this this morning interview. I'm going to talk about it. But you were invited to attend a conference in Brussels. Mm. You were then barred from attending as you were six months pregnant. You were effectively discriminated against by the European Commission. Talk to me about that time. What happened? Yeah, it was a real shock because, I mean, you really think of the um, the EU obviously being at the forefront of establishing oh. these sorts of rights. So I had yeah. to I had to sort of uh, look uh, twice, three times and call some of my colleagues over to come and have a read of the email that I'd been sent. Mm. Um, luckily for me, in a way, they'd put it in writing. So, you know, I had that 
evidence, as it were, that, that this had happened. Um, I mean, it was a, as a result, um, they invited me to speak. Mm. Ironically enough, it was at a conference promoting um, STEM for women. Oh my uh, God. <laughs> so Which is, uh, you know, even yeah. more uh, mind boggling um, yeah. that they made the decision that they did. And, and it was just on sorting out the logistical arrangements as to how I was going to travel from London to Brussels. And I, and I uh, requested travel by train because it would just save me having to worry about getting potentially having to get a doctor's note because some airlines have particular rules about flying at seven months pregnant which is where I would have been and uh, they just went oh oh you're pregnant um, or we don't think um, you know for your own safety that you should be attending so we're uninviting you oh um, essentially um, so it was really a shock. Yeah. Um, I mean, my mum, she always, again, um, told a story about how she was um, uh, discriminated against at work when she was pregnant with me. Yeah. And she, she lost her job and had to fight to um, get her job back. And that was back in the 80s. And you think, you know, things have moved on and then it happens to you. And you're, you know, you think, wow, actually, there's still some, there's still some walls to, to sort of break down as yeah. it were it's still there yeah um and uh, yeah I mean as you say I, I tried the route obviously of just politely saying I don't think so I think you know yeah. I, I'll be fine I'll be the judge of that and yeah. um you wouldn't uninvite um you know if you had a I don't know a, an elderly speaker who had a heart condition you wouldn't uninvite him because you thought no. he might be a risk to his medical condition no. so why would I be any would I why would I be treated any differently um they refused to back down um, changed their positions. So I was, uh, I had a chat with our legal advisor within the company at the time just to ask her advice more than anything else. And um, she suggested, given that, you know, what I wanted was to, as you say, to right the wrong, as it were, this shouldn't be happening, this shouldn't no. be allowed. Um, she said, well, let's do a press release and mm. put it through their agency. Mm. And, um, you know, funnily enough, press releases, anti-EU press releases were quite popular with certain news outlets at the time and it mm. got picked up pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and then it all blew up on Twitter. Yeah, and, uh, I know. Yeah. I was just about to say that, that you took to Twitter <laughs> and then all these stories of other women coming forward, talking about their experiences it and was facing amazing. adversity. It's, yeah. It shows that community feel and it, it makes you frustrated that how can the European Commission have have done that how could they have mm. made a decision like that on your behalf when you very well knew exactly what your what your status was in terms of your own health and well-being mm. so it just was really bizarre to me that that happened yeah. um but did you end up you ended up getting a written apology right or I did, did you... yes unfortunately the conference itself actually was cancelled um, yeah. um, because of uh, um, I think there was um so a bombing in Brussels at the time yeah yeah. Um, so the can uh, they cancelled the conference, but I did get a full written apology on the website on the EU website uh, very quickly oh after the God. press release yeah. went out. Um, unsurprisingly, yeah. um, and also I mean one of the conditions I asked for was just a phone call with the individual that had made the decision, right? Because yeah. I just wanted to understand. I wanted to have a conversation with that person. Um, and it, it was a middle-aged woman, which I suppose surprised me because I, I guess I again oh. this is my. Um, uh, sort of biases um, but I thought it would be a, a man um, but it was a middle-aged um, lady um, that I ended up speaking to um, and um, you know she had thought she'd been doing the best thing by me mm. and uh, I, and I, I guess that you have some sympathy with the fact that you know it was coming from the right place but I think that's yeah. why it was so important to have that conversation with her and to, mm. to out this as an issue mm. because people have to realize that you know it's up to the individual to make those sorts of decisions and by 
excluding a pregnant woman from speaking on STEM, you're actually doing the very thing that, you know, they would invited me there to promote, yeah. which is to discourage women from pursuing scientific careers for fear of it impacting on their ability to have family life. Yeah, yeah. No, the fact that you stood up and you did something about it is is inspiring. And I think, how do you know when to take action in those in those situations because there'll be other women that are facing adversity that have that want to right a wrong and they don't know whether to do it they're hesitant Mm. what would you say to those women that are struggling I think it's very personal and Mm. and very situation dependent um it it, it's you come under a lot of scrutiny as well when it gets that public um and and for me you know when you've got news articles in places like the daily mail with all of the comment sections and the mirror um, I mean, I tended not to read those, but, no. um, you know, certain family members did and got very upset on my behalf. Um, yeah. it, it's it's something that um, I think you have to, if you're not, it's very difficult to say to an individual, it's your responsibility to take that on, on behalf of all of, in my case, womankind, as it yeah. were. Um, it has to be something that you, you know, feel passionately enough about and yeah. be something that um, you know that you can cope with. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I don't regret it in the no, least. You um, shouldn't. Because the support, actually, the outpouring of support, that was the, as you say, the stories that were shared on Twitter of the sorts of things that women were doing. And and also the counter stories, because this is the, this is the you know, this is the whole point. You know, there were women that had, um, you know, particularly difficult pregnancies or struggled through the last few months. Um, and um, it's as much for those women, because the whole point is, you know, it's a choice. And if I had had a particular issue at seven months and needed to pull out, well, that that would have been life in the same way if someone was ill or had a medical condition, they would have had to pull out. It wasn't a case of saying that all pregnant women need to be sort of, you know, superheroes that can do everything. No. Um, It's about the fact that it's taking away your choice to do that. So. Um, yeah. So it was really nice to sort of see the support from both sides. Yeah, really nice that you've had the support, obviously, from from others. Mm. And no, I, I I agree with your decision. I think you did the right thing, personally. Let's talk a little bit about the pandemic, because you're in the position where you've obviously set up fitness jeans. And we talked about the fact that the business itself were encountering a mountain of debt, the mm. money from the Series A investment had been all been spent. What was your mindset like during that time frame? Because that must have been really tough, tough. It was. Um, it was very, it was, um, I mean, I'd just come back into the company. So um, long story short, I took an 18 month break. Yeah. Um, had a, a difference of opinion with the board on the, the strategic direction of the business at the time. I came back in, in um, it was uh, March 2020. And um, from that point, COVID hit a month later. Yeah. And um, obviously all of our usual routes to market were shut down. The gyms that we affiliated with were all closed. We couldn't ship kits out. The Royal Mail, uh, the postal offices were, were closed. So we decided to do a complete pivot. And um, having had a conversation with a, a colleague, um, someone that I'd previously linked in with at a conference, really important to do your networking, of yeah. course. Um, he'd contacted me because he knew, obviously, um, about fitness genes and he was after some um, saliva testing kits, some sample testing kits, because they were creating a COVID test that was um, based on saliva. 
um, as a, an alternative to the, the swab-based tests. Yeah. Um, so I said, yeah, come on down. Um, and I'd completely forgot they were already packed up into boxes. Mm. So we sat there on a, I think it was a Sunday morning, unpacking all these 500 boxes one by one together and just got chatting. And he said, yeah, we're setting up a lab to do COVID testing. If you want to, um, you know, we could process samples for you. So I thought about it and um, thought, well, we're not doing anything else at the moment. So mm. why not do COVID testing? Yeah. Um, so we went, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll set something up with you. Um, we basically repurposed the, because we had a pre-existing platform mm. through um, Fitness Jeans, um, direct to consumer um, pipeline, logistics pipeline. So we repurposed that, cloned it, um, created a COVID platform and um, started doing COVID testing. And then when the travel restrictions came in, everything just exploded wow. and um, sales went crazy. It went through the roof. Um, we obviously had one of the only saliva-based COVID test kits on the market, which made us particularly popular. Mm, mm. Um, and yeah, we had a really great sort of 12 months of um, just doing COVID testing. The whole DNA business sort of got put on the back burner for that 12 months. Um, but the great news was we managed to... Um, you, you know, we managed to refinance the company. Right, yeah. Um, we bought ourselves two years runway. Mm. Um, we paid off all of the debt that the company had built up. Um, and we just put ourselves in a great position then to spend the next 12 months working just solely on product development, um, which was such a, a, a delight after sort yeah. of, I mean, when you run a startup, you get used to going um, sort of, um, you know, hand to mouth in terms of finances. Every yeah. year you're either raising or you've just raised and you're getting stuck into new projects. You know, six months later, you need to go out and raise again. You've yeah. only ever got 18 months runway, yeah. you know, maybe two years runway. Um, so it was a real pleasure to um, just spend that 12 months um, yeah. on product development and creating something really cool. Yeah. And I suppose it's so unpredictable when you're going through that journey. But you, like you said, you did such an amazing job. And to go from being in debt to then effectively being in a position where you can then seek investment in the long run is mm. such an amazing thing to be in. But I've got a note here. You you ended up generating 4.8 million in revenue in nine months, cleared your debt, and it gave you two months, like you said, of runway of funding, which is so impressive to be able to achieve the 4.8 mil in nine months is like mm. that's brilliant and you must have been so happy that that happened obviously <laughs> yeah we were all very proud we did it on a very small team and we managed I think I think the thing we were most proud of we obviously had an underlying business and mm. there were a lot of COVID testing companies and I think we all know this that popped up at the time um, yeah you know didn't need to worry about any future business um, we're quite happy to operate on quite um dubious terms most of the time mm -hmm. um, we had a future business to worry about we had a customer yeah. base to worry about we wanted yeah. good reviews from people yeah. we wanted yeah. people to go on Trustpilot and to see what a great company we were exactly. particularly we didn't want to destroy our DNA testing business with no. lots of negative reviews so we put um, and to be honest this is the ethos of our company anyway mm. but we put a huge amount of effort into ensuring that we delivered really great customer service mm. to customers that we were very fair in the way that we managed the testing process mm. 
we provided refunds uh, where customers couldn't travel, for example. Um, you know, we in some cases where um, kits were delayed because uh, they got lost in the raw mail, we would um, courier them out. Um, we yeah, even had our own client so services nice. manager drive to someone's house in um, Brighton once yeah. to ensure that they got the test so they could get their flights. Yeah. Um, so that was really important to us as well was to yeah. maintain our standards, you know, even throughout that um, really period of high demand yeah. uh, with a team of, um, there were 16 of us in total at the time managing the whole operation. Wow. So, Wow. No, you should be proud because it just it just goes to show that, you know, your customer service, like you mentioned, it's all in line with the company ethos, mm. which is which is very, very important. So you should be very, very pleased. But we talked early about the pattern. Obviously, now we're in a situation where it was originally in pending status. It's going to grant. It's been a six or seven year battle mm. of you being in this position, which is amazing news. But you ended up appointing a patent attorney. How does it feel being in a position where it's now you're you know on the other side of things and yeah. it's going to be approved and it's or it's in the process of being approved it, it has been approved been we've okay. got the intent to grant letter so it has That's been approved good. which is fantastic um yeah i mean the we're really grateful um in these circumstances to our patent attorney as you mentioned yeah. um it was a real case of bringing in someone with particular expertise right of dealing in this case with difficult um, European patents in mm. the um, digital healthcare space. And um, our, uh, our representative was an expert in this particular space and she showed it um, with her dealings with the, um, the patent examiners throughout the process. Very professional, um, knew the right way to sort of structure the responses. Mm. Um, and I think it just, again, goes to um, exemplify how important it is to bring in professionals yeah. into the process at the right moments. Yeah, I can't agree with that more because we were talking about this early on, but even on Teams, and I was saying that it's so important to get delegate because mm. especially as an entrepreneur, and I've seen this time in, time out when I've spoken to other entrepreneurs and they will struggle with the art of delegation. They will feel that they need to do everything themselves, that mm. they can't utilize experts. <laughs> and I think there's a real fine yeah. line, but I was listening to a masterclass. Richard Branson was talking about the fact that being a dyslexic, it's really aided him with the art of delegation when people in general struggle with it day in, day out. So no, that's interesting. But how do you encourage others to delegate, especially as an entrepreneur, when you want to do everything <laughs> yourself, you don't want to, you don't want anyone else to anyone else to do it? How do you ensure that that you do actually appoint that expert like you did with the patent attorney? I mean, I think there's an element of, I'm still learning <laughs> in that. <laughs> Even after all this time, I've just got so used, as you say, when you're literally the first person in the company and you've done everything. Yeah. Everything from the lab work to the numbers, to the customer yeah. service, to the emptying the, the bins. You're the receptionist, yeah. everything, yeah. Um, so it, it, does, it does take time to sort of develop, as you say, that, that um, understanding that sometimes you've just got to think about the best use of your time because time's a limited resource. Yeah. Um, and um, thinking about how you spend your time um, in such a way that you can avoid burning out mm. um, is, is really important. Mm. And there's areas where, as you say, th these are almost the easier cases where mm. you need experts, mm -hmm. writing a contract, dealing with a patent, mm. um, you know, um, doing some digital marketing. Yeah. Those very clear cases in, in those circumstances for bringing in a specialist and an, an agency or somebody that understands that obviously in a much deeper um, amount than you do. I think where the really difficult delegation comes in is on the tasks where you 
no, actually, you're probably the best person to do it, Mm -hmm. but that there is someone else in your team that could do it and they could do it adequately. Mm -hmm. They could do it satisfactorily, probably to very good standards. Um, Maybe not as good as your own. And I think that's where the really difficult delegation um, comes in um, because it's a case of almost having to say, I accept that I'm lowering my standards on this, that done is, you know, is good enough. Um, and is better than perfection yeah um, and actually you know once you've passed that task on and it's got done well that's opened up your time to do something where it really is critical that your skills are needed in that particular area mm. and that's where you really find that things fly yeah um, so I would say that that's probably where it is most difficult to to manage is making those decisions and I think it, a lot of the time it just comes down to practice understanding and hiring the right people into your team um, that yeah can, you can delegate these tasks to that you trust enough to delegate these tasks to right and I also think it's removing the ego and mm. recognizing that there's someone else that can can do the job and can do as, as good a job as you so yeah I think that's that's important as well but mm-hmm. um no this has definitely been a really interesting conversation I have one final question and then I'm going <laughs> to let you go you, the next phase is about introducing AI and machine machine learning into the system how's that all going to work Oh, for fitness genes. Um, Yeah, this is fascinating. And we've got an EPSRC, uh, we're part of an EPSRC uh, research bid uh, for an AI hub at the moment, because this is an area where we know we can really add value to the current product. Um, Essentially, for us, it would be about when when people ask us, you know, what's where's the proof? How can you prove what you do works? Um, Well, the obvious answer to that is any of the recommendations that we follow are healthy advice. Mm. What we want to prove is what the difference the um, the impact of the DNA and and using DNA makes to it and where we can start to track some of that and to measure some of that is by looking is is gathering feedback Mm -hmm. from our customers Mm -hmm. in terms of the actions they're following Mm -hmm. and the outcomes that they are getting Um, and we can use devices such as wearables for example to track Mm -hmm. some of this data and then we can use machine learning algorithms to actually work out where we're, the recommendations we're making are particularly effective um, and where perhaps they're not as effective as well. And to effectively reweight the model so that we put more weighting behind the recommendations where we're seeing a really um, uh, a large impact associated with them and then lowering the weighting against those where perhaps we're not seeing the impact that we might predict from the Um, the research studies that have been associated with that particular variant so um, for us that's the that's the exciting future yeah I'm excited to see what happens but thank you so much for coming on cool thank you very much thank you for having me (laughs) thank you